Now, Nigel Farage uh, recently caused a steer in the news, if you are we're following it, he always does, isn't it? But he recently caused another one uh, by announcing that he would be willing to back a call for a second Brexit referendum. Uh, you think perhaps he's just bored and he probably wants to uh, do more. But he wants to do, you know, he's happy to do this, the thing all over again. He says, just to shut everyone up. Um, those, of course, that voted for the UK to leave, the EU says, Mrs. May, is giving away too much in the negotiations. Uh, we are only going to leave in name only. Uh, the substance will remain. In fact, they've given Theresa May a nickname. My nickname they've given her is Theresa Giveaway. Uh, that's what they think about how she's going about it. Uh, those that voted for the UK to remain, okay, so those that voted to leave think she's giving away too much. Those that voted the UK to remain, in the EU, think she's too inflexible. Uh, they want life to continue as normal, and uh, they would like to see the Prime Minister compromise just a bit more than she is doing at present. Well, whether you are leave or remain, I'm not suggesting those sitting this side uh, leave uh, or remain, uh, whether you are leave or remain, or you just don't care, uh, the call for a second Brexit referendum tells us something about all of us, doesn't it? It tells us, it reminds us that as human beings, we find it difficult to stick to anything. We find it difficult to stand firm. We like to bend the rules in a way that suits us. Uh, it is actually not natural for us as human beings just to be principled and stand firm. It's the legacy of our fallen nature. You know, people normally say it is better to bend than to break. Why did I say that? Because standing firm is costly. Uh, standing firm against the bully at work could mean losing that precious promotion you've been working towards. Uh, standing firm for God in your life may mean ending a relationship you have treasured. It may even mean standing firm in, in your in a relationship could even mean if it's a marriage, it could even mean your marriage becoming more strained believe it or not, because you're standing on biblical grounds. Standing firm against sin in the church may mean losing people we love because we are honest about their need to change and turn away from sin. Standing firm is not easy. Standing firm is costly. And because it's costly, people just choose to compromise. And therefore, it is not a surprise that the Bible, throughout the Bible, God is always reminding people to stand firm. And he does this in different ways. Sometimes God does this through direct commands. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica says this, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, Oh, by our letter. Paul, Peter, we are studying that on Thursday, isn't it? The letter of Peter. The final verses of First Peter says this, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, we don't feel it's briefly, given how long we've been going through it, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then he does what? He says, stand firm in it. 
So God often directly commands his people to stand firm. But also God sometimes tells us to stand firm by giving us good examples in the scriptures of standing firm. Like the life of Jephthah here and the example in front of us. The example we are going to look at this evening. In this example, God wants us to learn from Jephthah on our need to stand firm in him. So the question I want us to explore this evening just uh, briefly is this. What does it mean to stand firm in God? And how do we do it? Well, look with me at Judges chapter 11, verse 12 to verse 27. There are just three important truths I want to share this evening from this passage about standing firm in our faith in God. And the first truth I want to draw out, which is in front of your outline, is that we must stand firm against opposition. We must stand firm against opposition. Now you remember, for those of you who have been following, we are studying the life of Jephthah. Jephthah is now, this morning we saw Jephthah is now the new leader, the new leader and judge of Israel. And we learned this morning that Jephthah has a rotten background. You know, he's, he's, he's a crime, he used to be a crime lord in Togo. And now God has raised him up to be the judge. Living behind that terrible background, he's now in charge of Israel's besieged army. The army is besieged because the, the king of the Ammonites is threatening to wipe away Israel. So Jephthah, this new leader now, has the impossible job of standing up to the king of the Ammonites. And Jephthah immediately gets down to business in verse 12. He sends a message to the king of the Ammonites, and he wants to make it clear to the king that he is in charge of Israel now, and Ammon must end its aggression against Israel. Look at verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me? That you have come to me to fight against my land. It's very personal. He's making clear that he's in charge. And above all, Jephthah is saying politely to this bullying king, Go away. We don't want you here. Now, it takes a lot of courage to say what Jephthah is saying. Because Israel has been under threat by the Ammonites for 18 years. And for Jephthah now to stand up against that king, it takes a lot of courage. But Jephthah, you see, is choosing to stand firm against the king of the Ammonites, stationed at Gilead. And he's doing so with enormous courage. You see, all people of God face many of these Gilead moments. That moment where you are up against it and you must now stand firm in God. That moment where you must stand firm even at great cost to yourself. Now in some parts of the world, standing firm for God means physical loss of life. We know this, don't we? Every five minutes around the world, a Christian is martyred for their faith in God. In many parts of the world, standing firm for God will mean you losing your life. Now, in the UK, standing firm in God won't lead to the loss of your physical life at present. But you still face deadly opposition. I would even say deadlier opposition. 
You don't face a physical threat on your life. You face an attack on your spiritual life. And you must stand firm, first of all, against who? Against yourself. You are a sinner. So you are the greatest enemy of yourself. Why? Because your sinful nature is working around the clock to cause you pain. Your anger is destroying your marriage. Your love of comfort is leading you into dead problems. Your laziness to pray and study and read God's word is eroding your intimacy with God and his church. You must stand firm against yourself. And you must stand firm as you live among sinners in this world. Some colleagues at work will slander your name. People you trust will let you down when you need them most. The list is endless in the world. As long as you are around sinners, you must stand firm. You must stand firm against yourself. You must stand firm in this world as the world brings pain on you. And you must stand firm against Satan. If you are a follower of Jesus, the devil is after you. He wants to destroy everything you love and trust. He wants to destroy your faith in God, your, faith, your family, your work, your friends. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are at war with Satan and his dark forces. You must stand firm. And the devil is also out to destroy this church. He's working us to love. He's working very hard to make us love sin. He's working very hard to make us be prayerless. He's working very hard to make us feel discouraged. He's working very hard to bring chaos in our families so that we are not able to focus on things that matter most to God in the church. He's working very hard to discourage us from evangelism and just become self-focused on the details of our lives. The devil is at work, not just for you in, against you individually. He's at work for the church that you love in Christ. We must together stand firm. So how then do we stand firm against such difficult opposition? Well, by following what Jephthah does here. We must stand firm by standing on the truth of God. And that's our second truth. Point number one, stand firm against opposition. Point number two, stand firm on the truth of the Bible. Notice here that Jephthah's messengers now have delivered the message to the king of the Ammonites. They've told him, go away. How will the king now respond? Look at verse 13. He responds by making a counter demand. Would you believe it? Here's what he says in verse 13. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land. From the Anon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably. He is in effect saying to Jephthah, Israel is occupying this land of Gilead illegally. This is an illegal occupation. You are slaves of Egypt and you are squatting on my land. The land is not yours, it belongs to me. So just restore it and we'll be cool with it. Now, now when Jephthah sent the message to the king of the Ammonites, he was not expecting the king of the Ammonites to stand down. 
But even himself, he must be shocked to hear such fake news from Ammon. I mean, the king of Ammon has made it all up. He's made it all up. But you see, instead of Jephthah going on Twitter and ranting and even perhaps telling him that he should have gone to spec servers to read history books properly, no, he responds to him with facts. The facts of history clearly shows that the eastern part of Israel, which, he, which Ammon is saying he belongs to, 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 to it, Gilead never belonged to Moab and Ammon, but the Amorites. Look at verse 14 to verse 18. Let's just read through this lengthy passage. Let's see how Jephthah responds. Jephthah says, again, Jephthah again sent messengers, verse 14, to the king of the Ammonites and said, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came out from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Verse 18 says, Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Anon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for Anon was the boundary of Moab. So simply put, what Jephthah is saying is that, you see, originally Gilead belongs to the Amorites. Okay? So Gilead belonged to the Amorites. And he's saying, look, when the people of Israel came to Moses, they, they didn't even want that land. The land that we are occupying now. They didn't want it. We went round we Moab. We never even came near where Ammon is. Notice it doesn't even mention Ammon at all. Because Ammon is far away, actually, from where he's talking about. The geography is like this. Israel is here. Gilead is here. Okay? And that Gilead is split up, really. That part of Gilead is the Amorites here. And below Gilead is Moab. And northeast of Moab is where Ammon is. And what Jephthah is saying is that when the people left the wilderness of Zin, they went round Moab, never came near Ammon, and just tried to pass in between the land of the Amorites and the land of Moab, which is bordered by the river Anon. So, what are you talking about? Is essentially what he's saying. This land never belonged to you. It belonged to the Amorites. And above all, we never wanted the land from the Amorites anywhere. The Amorites would have kept it. Because when Moses was bringing the people through the wilderness and entering that area, he had asked for permission to enter Canaan, to cross the Jordan into Canaan. But the Amorites refused. And because they refused, they chose to fight Israel. And sadly for the Amorites, God gave us victory over them. They wanted to fight. We fought. They lost and we won. So Gilead now belongs to us through no fault of our own. That's why verse 29 to 23. That's basically what verse 29 to 23 says. Let's read it again now that we've got a bit of a summary of what it says. It says, Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Eshbon, and Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our country. That is Canaan. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, 
So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jairus and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, Gilead basically, who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory, Jephthah says, of the Amorites from the Anon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then, Jephthah concludes, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Do you get what the point is making? Jephthah is saying, it was never yours, and we got it fairly. So frankly, check your facts. And then for good measure, he had seen another jive. Look at verse 24 to 26. He says this, Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak? The son of Zippo, king of Moab. Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Eshbon and his villages, and in Aror and his villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Anon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them during that time? I mean, to summarize what he's just saying, he's simply saying, look, stop pretending you're big. The Ammonites have never claimed our land. And then Jephthah has the punchline in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. That is basically now just telling us, bring it on, he says, bring it on. We are not going anywhere. Because I am standing on the truth of God. You see, all of that Jephthah said is found in Numbers 22 to 23. He's simply quoting the Bible to the king of the Ammonites. He's saying, this is the truth of God and I'm standing on it. All people of God stand firm on the truth of God's word. And that means knowing the truth of the Bible, first and foremost, and seeking to live by it all. I just want to underline that word. We are to live by all of the scripture. All of it. If you are a true follower of Jesus, your challenge is not that you don't read the Bible. If you are a true follower of Jesus, you have a love for reading the Bible. It's one of the tests. Are you being drawn towards reading the scriptures? Because you see, all spiritual babies crave spiritual milk. So the challenge for a believer is not whether they read the Bible or not. I mean, friends, that's a minimum. The challenge for us is, are we doing what the Bible says? Not part of it, all of it. You read the Bible, but are you sticking to it? Are you standing firm on the truth by fully submitting to all of it? The sad truth is that many who profess to be followers of Jesus treat the Bible as an a la carte menu at the restaurant, isn't it? We pick and choose from the scripture. You know the Bible commands you, it's a command, to make disciples. 
But you're not seeking to disciple anyone. You feel that command is just optional. Uh, you might even feel it's for the pastor, for the church as a whole. But it's, it's the church, but it's also personal to you. You are not taking that command seriously, therefore you are sinning against God. If you are not actively working or even praying for opportunities to disciple someone. You know the Bible commands you not to lie. But you have decided that some lies are okay, especially to children. So if I, if I tell a lie to Abigail, I have concluded, well, perhaps that's fine because it's not hurting anyone. But the Bible says, do not lie, friends. Do you see how we pick and choose things? You know the Bible commands you not to worry. Did you know the Bible commands us not to worry? And that to choose to worry is a sin? I, you, you look shocked. Yes, it's in the scripture. And therefore we must actually repent of our worry before God. Do you see how we pick and choose things? We give it names, we give things. You know, the Bible commands, the Bible says that God loves you with an everlasting love. And yet you still doubt his love. And you feel ashamed of your past. That hurts God, doesn't it? Because God is the Father, he's saying, I love you. And yet you doubt his love. You're not obeying, you're not, you're not trusting your father. You know the Bible says you belong to Jesus and all that he has belongs to you and yet you still want to pursue happiness in this life at all costs. You're picking and choosing. Beats that work for you, you keep. Beats that you don't. We can go on. The Bible commands us to evangelize, share Jesus with others. It's a command. To you, not to the pastor. To you. Where we're not obeying these things, we're sinning against God. You see, if you profess faith in Jesus and yet live like that, you are not standing firm in Jesus. You are standing on Jesus with one leg. (laughs) It's not firm, it's like one leg on Jesus and one leg in the world, as it were. That's not standing firm. Standing firm, friends, is to stand both legs in Jesus. Stand firm in Jesus. Why? Why should we stand firm? Because God is with you. God is with you. This is our final point. The first thing we've learned from here is that we must stand firm against opposition. How do we stand firm? What point two tells us? We stand firm on the truth. The whole counsel of God. And why should we stand firm? What is our motivation? Because God is for us. God is with us. Notice here, Jephthah is standing firm against the Ammonites because he is sure that God is with Israel. And this God is an all-conquering God. A just God. Did you notice that twice he says to the king of Ammon that the God of Israel gives victory to Israel against their enemies, no matter how great they are? Look at verse 21. Verse 21, listen to what he says. He says, And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. It is God who conquered the Amorites. Look at verse 23. 
Verse 23 says what? So the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from his people, from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? He said, look, the Lord, the God, owns everything. He's the possessor of all things. No one. Can you challenge God like that? No, God is all powerful. And God is with Israel. He does all these things for them. Now, in verse 24, did you notice something interesting? In verse 24, he poses a question, Jephthah. He says, will you not possess what Kimosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. You might read that, you may think Jephthah is putting God on the same level as the Moabite idol Kimosh, by the way. Kimosh is a Moabite idol. But at this time, Ammon's power and reach are so advanced now that Moab has come under power. Look, this is a time of Ruth. When Moab is not considered a kingdom, Moab, in Ruth we speak of the fields of Moab. Because his power has declined. Ammon now is in the ascendance and he's threatening all that is around it. And what Jephthah is doing here is simply using the language that they understand. So, look, you trust your God, fine, that, go with that. So you do what your God is using their logic. But he's absolutely sure that Yahweh has no equals. Kimosh is a false idol. Look at verse 27, how he puts Yahweh as the final authority in all things. He says, the Lord, the Lord of Israel, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. God is an all-conquering just God. And the amazing good news of the Bible is that if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus this evening, this God of Jephthah is your God through Jesus. So you can stand firm. Why can you stand firm? Because you see, Jesus has taken on all our enemies of sin, the world, Satan, death, and hell. And he's done what? He's totally crushed it on the cross. And he's risen to new life. He has, he has risen and is now sat in the heavens above all powers. And more than that, if you are in Jesus, if you have repented, you are now with the triune God. God lives in you, as we said this morning, and you now live in God forever. Maybe you are currently going through some trial in your life. The Bible say, is saying, if you are in Jesus, you must stand firm in that trial. Because Jesus is with you. Stand firm because in his death, you see, Jesus has taken on himself all your fears, all your pain, all your struggles, and he has nailed them to the cross. Stand firm because if you are feeling wounded and alone, you have in Jesus a wonderful Savior who has been wounded for you on Calvary. Stand firm because in his resurrection from death, Jesus has taken away our worries about the future. And he has replaced them with unshakable hope. Stand firm because you know that God has given you a new life in Jesus. And you know that he's working what? All things for his glory and for your good. Stand firm because you know that if God is for you, who can be against you? 
Stand firm because you know the resurrection of Jesus shows that God is able to intervene in your worst suffering in the here and now. Stand firm, friends, because you know God is lovingly preserving you through all the difficulties of life and is bringing you safely into his eternal and glorious kingdom. Stand firm. Maybe you are a believer this evening whose heart is hardening. You are one foot on Jesus and you are kind of, you know, one foot in the world and you're allowing sin to take hold of you've taken your eye off the ball of the cross and you've allowed sin to take hold of you in your life are you struggling with some secret addiction tonight has your heart grown cold in sharing Jesus with your friends are you robbing God by failing to give all that financially belongs to him Whatever sin you are tolerating, if you are genuinely converted, God is saying to you this evening, stand firm by repenting of such sins. Stand firm. Come to him. Jesus has died on that cross for you. His veins flow with never-ending grace for you. Go to him. Repent of your sins. And like a loving father that he is, as a loving father that he is, he will welcome you. He will accept your repentance afresh. But we must not hear that all of this, of course, is only true for those who have truly surrendered to Jesus. Let me be clear that Jesus is not with you if you hear message after message and you're still going on living in the world, still half-hearted in your approach to him. If you are like that, Jesus is not with you because you are not with him. You are showing every sign every day that you are not truly converted. If you have no desire to surrender and live for him, if your heart never seeks to beat for things that his heart beats for, if you have no deep longing to love that which he loves, if every day there is no desire to put him first and these priorities, then quite simply, friends, let's not beat about the bush. Let's be honest that you are standing in opposition to him. You are standing with the Ammonites. Sin, the world, Satan, death, and hell are your friends. That's the serious nature of the predicament we are in. And this is a predicament of our family and friends as well. We should be serious about these issues. We should hear these truths, not just for ourselves, but for our family members. We must examine their lives. Are they standing firm? Is there evidence of genuine conversion in their lives? Because only when we ask such questions can we pray earnestly. If you are not genuinely converted, you are under the authority and power of Satan. You have willingly chosen to side with the devil rather than God. The good news of the Bible is that God wants to set you free 
from the loyalty to Satan and bring you into a wonderful relationship with him through his son. Salvation accomplished in Jesus and Jesus alone. And the good news of Jesus is that he has paid the price for your sins. And if you truly repent and turn to him today, you can become a child of God. Admit you are a sinner and ask God to forgive you of all your sin. Not based on church attendance or family connections, but on what Jesus has done on the cross for you. And this very moment, you will become a child of God. You will be able to say with all true followers of Jesus, I am standing firm in God. Amen.